Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each recording I'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. If you've got questions, ideas for topics or simply want to know more about upcoming podcasts, follow hashtag AskTheGeographer on Twitter for the latest updates. Caribbean creativity has shaped literary, music and dance cultures around the world. These performances tell us a lot about place, identity and politics. In today's podcast, I'm interviewing Dr Pat Noxolo from the University of Birmingham to discuss the ways in which Caribbean people have deployed creative energy to live with the everyday effects of insecurity, poverty and inequality in this culturally and environmentally unique region. So you're currently working on a research project exploring these themes in the Caribbean. Can you tell me why this region is environmentally, politically and socially dynamic and unique? So um, the Caribbean has been described as the crossroads of the world and that's because uh, it's in a sense neither western nor eastern, not because of where it's located spatially because of course everywhere is kind of the centre of the world in that way, but because uh, of its the range of affiliations that the Caribbean has. So obviously there's been various forms of European colonialism that have been in the Caribbean, so you get some islands still that are French-speaking, some that are English-speaking, some that are uh, Spanish-speaking, so you get a whole range, Dutch islands. So this is a, it's a kind of microcosm of the whole world from that point of view, so the Caribbean's fascinating from that point of view. You also get um, lots of flows of goods and people and of kind of weather patterns that go across uh, the Caribbean region because it strings out like a pearl, sort of an archipelago between North America and South America. It's a landing point for all sorts of trans-world crossings and so it's really interesting from that point of view. It's between North America and South America, so it's both, and it's a middle-income region, so it's between the global north and the global south, and that's really interesting. And all sorts of new key global players are also very interested in the Caribbean for all those reasons. So we we see China represented there, we see India represented there, lots and lots of Chinese and Indian investors, but also people talking about development as well. So from all sorts of points of view, the Caribbean is a, it's, it's not really a melting pot, but it's a, it's a location within which all sorts of global concerns take place. And of course it has some very important environmental resources, coral reefs, etc., which we're all invested in. Geopolitically, what's the relationship of the Caribbean to these um, rising economic powers? So that's really interesting at the moment. It's not an area that I'm, that I'm particularly looking at, but a lot of people are. Um, they're particularly interested in the changing relationships with Europe, at a moment when Europe itself is changing enormously, and the growing relationships with China. So I can, I can say a little bit about the growing relationships with China, although, to be fair, it's not my specialism. China has, if you like, had two waves within the Caribbean. So China, there were Chinese people who came uh, at a similar time to when enslaved people, enslaved Africans, also went to the Caribbean. And they were looking in the same way that Europeans were. 
they were looking for investment, they were looking for work. And so there's a very, very old community of Chinese Jamaicans, for example, of Chinese Trindadians that are there. And you get the same, there were indentured labourers who came from India uh, around the same time in, in circumstances that were not dissimilar to enslavement, although actually they were not enslaved. They were given recompense, but their levels of poverty at that time were, were similar. So you get, you've got these kind of older relationships with groups of people who are the diaspora of, the, of rising powers, people who are rising powers now. And then you've got newer communities of Chinese people and of Indian people who are coming in because of the investment opportunities, uh, who are coming in to, to make different um, age relationships than Europeans have made in the past, to talk in different ways about conditionality, for example, to bring in their own workers to have opportunities to, to work and to, you know, to partake in the same natural resources that Europeans also came to, to take part in. So, for example, aluminium uh, and bauxite mining, etc. So the region's always been really interesting geopolitically because it's a kind of magnet for excess wealth. And that was the same reason why Europeans came a long time ago, because at that time there was excess wealth in Europe. They, they couldn't think of where to... There were, there were fewer opportunities than there were people who had the wealth. And so the Caribbean was a place where people came to invest. And that's happening, happened to the islands repeatedly, and it's happening again today. So some of these challenges around security are fairly global challenges, but what are the everyday and local impacts of the okay. Caribbean? There's a, the, we've been trying, one of the things we've want, been wanting to do with the project, uh, which is called CARISCI, Caribbean Insecurities and Creativity, uh, one of the things we wanted to do was to, to shape the notion of security free from just being about the security of superpowers. So being about the security of the US or being about the security of Europe and saying, actually, if we think about security from the point of view of the Caribbean, what does that look like? But one thing that happens immediately is that security goes back several hundred years. Because when you look at societies where, um, where slavery was a really prominent feature, then you're, you've got uh, societies that have begun, say, 500, 600 years ago, in a situation of violence and insecurity for the majority of the population. Uh, with those kinds of societies, there's no point still thinking about this kind of exceptionality of security. It becomes an everyday banal thing that people live with in plantations where they are beaten, uh, where they are looking for where their next food is coming from, where they're living in really quite dramatic situations, but year on year, not uh, just in an exceptional moment. Uh, so security begins to change. Uh, its feature and becomes something that's much more banal, not exceptional. The other thing that happens to security is that it becomes what I would call perspectival. So what might be secure for me might not be the same as what's secure for you. So um, we can see this at the level of the household and at the level of the community. It may be that, for example, in a household where uh, there is domestic violence, the way in which stereotypically the, the man in the household or the patriarch of the household might secure his own identity might be in ways that are violent, which makes everybody else insecure. So by securing his own security, he's actually making everybody else more insecure. And we can see this scaled up geopolitically to ways in which 
the US might want to lock down the Caribbean as a as a um, what can be a volatile region right in its backyard. Obviously, then that has implications for the security of the Caribbean. So it, it can become more insecure when the US is becoming more secure. So this is one of the reasons why I talk about in slash security, because I want to think about security and insecurity as um, as working together as what we call relational uh, geographies. So sometimes the more security you have in one area, the more insecurity you have in another. And it seems to me that for some of the most vulnerable people uh, within the region, they're walking between security and insecurity all the time. It's not that they're ever going to get to a point or that anybody can say to them, you've been insecure, I'm going to make you totally secure. What tends to happen is that all the people who intervene might reduce one type of insecurity and actually exacerbate another one. So, for example, in order to um, make themselves more secure in terms of livelihood, there are some people in the region, in in Jamaica, this was a few years ago actually, uh, it's starting to be less of a phenomenon now, but what they call garrison communities. This is where the state has not fulfilled its responsibilities towards people and they don't feel secure. So they take on protectors, like uh, local gangsters, who will uh, make their livelihoods more secure. They'll find money for them when they need money. Uh, and uh, and uh, in the absence of a state that's, uh, that's able to provide welfare benefits, uh, the local don can do that and actually can be quite beneficial for people. So if you like, they, they walk into these people. But then they know by doing that, that actually there's criminality that surrounds those people, there's forms of violence that surround them, and they, you know, that can have consequences for people in your household. So you walk a line. You know, you do your best to to try to keep the kids fed and clothed and, you know, on an everyday basis. But you also know that, you know, there are some shady kind of characters around you and that you're, you know, you might be walking some lines in terms of violence. So there's a certain kind of rationality to that. That's about saying, actually, it makes sense to make alliances with people who have some power, even if that power can be of of a quite threatening kind. So I got quite interested in this idea that we we walk a line between security and insecurity and neither security nor insecurity is this kind of haven because there are moments, there are states of emergency in, um, in some areas of the region where security forces will come in and uh, will crack down on violence. But of course the everyday experience of that for people is, is enormously threatening you don't know who they're going to crack down on next, whose house they're going to go into, etc. It's disturbing. It's disturbing for locals, it's disturbing for tourists as well. So in, in trying to keep, trying to make things more secure, actually that can feel very insecure for people on an everyday uh, basis. So yeah, I think for, the, for individuals living day by day in the region, and of course this isn't everybody all the time, but it is for some people a large part of their life, uh, they've got to really have conscious agency in terms of security and insecurity and in terms of walking that line. And that's also something I wanted to kind of emphasise, that they have to take action and they do take action every day. They're not just sitting there timidly waiting for 
security forces to come in. They're taking action every day to make themselves a little bit more secure or to use insecurity for various purposes. And often they do that through creative practices, through singing, through music, through all sorts of things that they can get some control over. Uh, and for me, I see that as incredibly kind of uh, creative, as in some ways quite inspiring. Uh, it's, a, it's a different story of, uh, than the story of precarity or of, or of um, vulnerability. It's actually a story that's about uh, people taking action in their own lives. So the idea of creativity is twofold then, kind of people creatively dealing with these insecurities in their day-to-day life mm-hmm. and the creative outputs yes. of those doings. Could you tell me a bit more about how that plays out in your essay? Sure. I'm kind of, I've been interested in um, what I call creative practice, which I think... As I say, the, for me, agency is the, the important thing in there that people are able to take action. So creative practice, as you say, it can be the creative practice that's about um, being able to, to, to say, right, I, I need to find a solution to this problem. Uh, it may be a problem that's to do with finding a livelihood. And, and whenever I've been uh, to Kingston, which is uh, the... the um, the city I go to the most within Jamaica and within the, the region, I see young men who will offer to park your car, for example. Uh, so they'll offer to park your car because they haven't got a more stable job than that. So they're finding themselves something to do. They're not sitting around waiting for somebody to tell them, give them something. They're trying to find something to do. So they get out there, they're being creative about, oh, here's a traffic problem. Um, somebody needs to make, find a solution to this government's not stepping in, I can find just that little niche to to make myself into a little business, which then I can grow from there. Uh, And that kind of everyday creative practice, uh, I think is something that people can teach each other, which I think they do. It's something that they can, they engage with and they have to be skillful. I mean, obviously you begin to then get a, a glut of people doing this and then you have to be skillful about the niche, the smaller and smaller niche, the, the better and better service. Uh, and people do uh, practice to get better at what they're providing so that they can make a living for their families. The other side of creative practice, of course, is all sorts of people who are doing creative work, such as uh, visual arts, uh, but also music, people who are creating, as you say, creative outputs. And for me, the interesting thing about that in terms of the Caribbean is that the line between professional artists and, I guess, what we might think of as amateur artists, is a very thin line, a very blurred line. So there's a lot of people involved in creative practice just for their own pleasure, uh, to make life more livable, because there's no necessary um, inhibition around singing as you do things you know it's not it's not a culture where people are necessarily intimidated by singing as they go down the street or or by demonstrating their dance moves or you know so people are able to engage in creative practice at a number of different levels whether or not they're paid to do so whether or not they're trained to do so and so there's enormous amount of creativity that comes from a society where um, a large number of people are involved in creative practice. For me, a really interesting example of that, and I, uh, where my sort of starting point for creativity was literature. 
And um, I've been very interested in Caribbean novels. I mean, and obviously when you're a geographer looking at the Caribbean, but you're based in the UK, you kind of look at the bits of culture that travel most easily and books travel. So I've been interested in looking at, um, at novels and I've interested in writers such as Erna Broadbur, uh, Wilson Harris, who uh, I find they write a lot about space. Uh, most writers will write about place that's for sure. But I find that these writers are also interested in spatial patterns, relationships between sky and earth, all sorts of interesting spatialities which I have always been interested in analysing. But the other thing that's interesting about creative writing in the region is that there are a lot of writers who self-publish and a lot of writers who publish on the internet or who even before the internet were, were sort of publishing pamphlets and stories in pamphlets and then putting those in bookshops and so there's a lot of creative creative practice just everyday creative practice if people think that oh there's a book that uh, I want to read books to my children who that look like this with people that look like them they'll write those books and they'll draw you know the covers and they'll they'll make sure that those pictures are in there and uh, so there's an enormous amount of self-publishing given the small populations uh, and I, I find that sort of link with creative practice really interesting. And one thing that I wanted to do around security was to take that creative practice seriously as a form of agency and see what we could learn from creative practice about actually how people negotiate between security and insecurity in their everyday lives. So thinking about representation, geographies have been shaped by the power of the map as a tool to represent stories about different nations and experiences. How are you exploring alternative ways of representing these histories and experiences beyond maps? Okay. So I had started doing a project called Dancing Maps, uh, and this is one of the joys of being an academic, that you can pursue something without having any funding or any kind of backing, but just because it was something that... I found really interesting, just a, a, a little kernel of an idea that I thought, well, let's prod that and see what happens. And there was a good opportunity because there was a festival called the Being Human Festival, which is a festival of the humanities. Uh, and although a lot of human geographers are social scientists, uh, I'm a cultural geographer, so I'm kind of on the humanities end of the discipline. So I submitted an idea for an event called Dancing Map. What I wanted to do with that was there was a really just simple core idea, which was that I wanted people, young people in particular, but people in general, to engage with dance. Um, and I wanted them to engage with African-Caribbean dance. There's a kind of a history to that. Um, so my family came over from Jamaica, were part, they were part of the Windrush generation. And in the 19... They, so they came in about the 1960s. And then um, their children, so myself and my, my brothers and sisters, are part of that post-Windrush generation of the 1980s. And that generation, we had a number of, of um, difficulties and crises within the educational system. And um, a number of youth work initiatives in the 1980s were around seeing how... Um, the state could help 
young people uh, like myself to find themselves, to find a sense of identity um, as um, what they used to call second generation migrants. It's a nonsensical term and nobody uses it anymore. Uh, but there was a time when they were thinking of, of that generation in that way and what, do, what happens with them. So there were a lot of youth work initiatives and, and one of those uh, initiatives that was very widespread was teaching African Caribbean dance. And one of the things that that did was to, to teach a generation of teenagers, myself included, to love our bodies, to be aware of what our bodies could do, um, to move in ways that, that are still present within our traditions and cultures, uh, and to be aware of a longer history um, that we could be proud of and that we could be a part of as part of an African diaspora. And I found... I have three children and I began to, at the beginning of the Dancing Maps experiment, I began to think, actually, how do they get hold of that background and that um, history? And yes, there's, there's lots of African Caribbean dance that young people are constantly reinventing. So the, the history, the tradition is by no means dead. But I, I, want, I think there's something very special about traditional African Caribbean dance. The power of it... Uh, the movement of it and just that getting to know one's own body um, and to respect what it can do. So I thought, how can I combine uh, the technologies that young people are using and where they feel very much at home in those virtual spaces and digital spaces uh, and those traditional dance? So the dancing maps, I thought, well, actually, what I would like young people to do is to see examples of the dance, of, of traditional dances, perhaps learn a little bit about those dances uh, and then practice to move in that way, practice that particular dance and it would be just a small segment, a couple of seconds but to practice a particular dance move and then once they feel confident and they feel they've got it in their body so to actually practice then they would take a video of themselves and then they would upload it to a, a screen and then you would end up with a kind of video wall of looping GIF files of people dancing together on a screen. And uh, I found it was an idea that a lot of people really liked. Even my, my, my children who, obviously when you're the son or a daughter of, a, of an academic, you get a lot of strange ideas being thrown at you and they often go, oh dear, and roll their eyes at me. But with this one, they, they said, oh, that is interesting, and they smiled, and, and I thought, okay, good, That's, it's, got, it's a little hook, you know. And I think since then I've been trying to think about what it is uh, that is likeable about the idea of it. And so I've explored it in a number of different directions. So at the event itself, we invited a number of people from the community to come. Um, we had a lovely uh, evening event. We had some speakers, people who knew about African Caribbean dance in more detail. Uh, and we had uh, one or two people who knew about mapping. We had a local dance group come and, uh, and perform their piece as well. And a lot of that was about getting them onto the university campus for me. So that's also been another agenda to reconnect universities with African Caribbean community. But I carried on exploring the idea of dancing maps and I carried on with a website and a blog uh, about the experience of getting people to, come, to do these dances. It was actually more difficult than I expected because people are quite inhibited in their bodies actually and to try to get people to do that uh, and to really inhabit these dances was more difficult than I expected it to be. But the other side of it was um, that I started to look at the literature around African Caribbean dance 
And I realised that, in fact, traditionally, African dance in particular has, has not been inhibited by disciplinary boundaries. So it's not been that dance is just, just about being beautiful and nothing else. Dance has uh, been a f- way of passing down history. Uh, dance has been about a way of um, celebrating and making social relationships. And I realised that actually uh, dance, in quite a traditional way, has been a way of, of representing space in the way that European maps do. So it's not a pictorial thing, you know, they don't draw it on a piece of paper, but you can actually describe spatial relationships uh, through dance forms. And I found that really interesting. So I began to think about um, how, what sorts of spatial relationships are being described by different dances, uh, to begin then to think about how space might be thought of differently in different societies. So there's quite a long way to go. For me, it's been quite you know, generative. It's made me think in lots of different ways and approach lots of different types of theory um, to think about how these dancing maps are maps. The other thing that it's done that's been really valuable for me has been to, to help me to think about and critique maps. And this is one of the things that's happened in geography over recent years. Maps have come under a lot of criticism because maps were tools for, for the colonial project. Maps were all about exploring the interior and, and finding out where the resources were and finding the best way to get to those resources and get them out and back to uh, the metropole. So, so maps were very much linked with power uh, and exploitation. And I think for African-Caribbean people, maps have often been exclusionary because maps tend to have on them only the things that exploiters want. So they, have the, they, they show you where the diamond mine is, but they don't show you where the people uh, live or what's important to the people who live there uh, because maps are very selective about what they show. So one thing that the dancing maps project was about was to reinstate the dancing body as an important part of space, that it should actually be there and be the focus of the dancing maps, to me seemed very important. And I think that that's something that has an importance not only for African-Caribbean people, for whom I think actually there is a lot of dispossession within the West, the sense that our bodies may not matter. And that's why people talk about Black Lives Matter, because actually our bodies are often seen as always in the wrong place when we're in Europe. But I think the other kind of element of that is as, as mapping continues and goes online and becomes digital, uh, we're increasingly seeing ourselves as just dots on a screen. And there is something really estranging about that for all of us as human beings to constantly see ourselves as just a mass of data. Um, so what I wanted to do with the Dancing Maps project, or one thing that I think has come out quite nicely for me, is that idea that it's very important for us to see ourselves in digital space, actually being people with bodies that move and not just being represented by little pixels or anything. And so the Dancing Maps project has been a kind of continuing thought experiment. And I felt, I think, very privileged as a geographer to be able to have that space within the discipline because it's a very kind of um, wide discipline uh, but also to have that space within my role as an academic to be able just to think about, you know, to have a thought experiment and to take it through. Um, I found that really quite liberating. 
Do you have any advice for any students who might consider using creative methods uh, to explore themes such as place and identity? Okay, so I have uh, a number of students that I work with, PhD students and dissertation students, uh, undergraduate dissertation students, and they, they, they take, I think now, more and more creative approaches because there's a, there's a, a growing kind of freedom uh, within geography to, to research in a lot of different ways. So I've, I've had students who have taken dance forms. For example, I had a really interesting one a year or so ago where what she decided to do, she had a ballet training. So she was trained in ballet, and so, but she was interested in, in how um, a training in ballet educates your body in a particular way whereas training in other dance forms might educate your body in different ways. So she got a group of dancers who were interested in hip-hop and a group of dancers who were interested in ballet, and she got them to exchange places, so to ballet dancers to be trained in hip-hop and hip-hop dancers to be trained in ballet. And then that allowed her to, you, to draw on the existing literature to, to really think about uh, what it does with the body when, uh, when, you, when you kind of go against your training when you make your body do something that it's not used to doing i thought that was a very nice kind of nice idea very simple just sort of swapping places thought it was a really interesting idea um i've had people who have trained themselves in a new dance form you know so so that they can do an autoethnography they can closely observe what's happening in their own body and be able to write about that all of these forms although the idea itself can be quite simple but it often takes quite a lot of advanced theory to really analyse what's going on. And so that's where um, I think a lot of students who, are, who have these nice, clear ideas then need to think very carefully about how they're going to make that analysis, how they're going to analyse what's gone on and then how they're going to write that up. Because actually, the more we write about things that go beyond language the harder it is to put it back into language in order to write it up as a dissertation or a thesis. Um, but I think sometimes when things are very hard in that way, hard to express, uh, they actually teach us a, a great deal. So we learn a lot through the process, but it can be quite a difficult process. I've also known people who've written, uh, done creative writing as part of their own research. And that can be that they've done creative writing as a way of getting to of analysing that kind of embodied data. So, for example, in the kind of thing where I say, you know, somebody might do an autoethnography of doing something new, like tasting a new cuisine, for example. I had a very good dissertation where somebody talked about bringing a group of people who were not used to Chinese food to a Chinese restaurant and giving them food that wouldn't normally be eaten by non-Chinese people. Um, Sometimes creative writing can be really helpful in finding a way to describe that embodied experience because often, often what novelists and poets are doing is trying to, get beyond, trying to use language to get beyond the, you know, the things that we normally say to each other. So creative writing can be really helpful as a form of analysis, but creative writing can also be something that we analyse. And people often, if they're interested in, in how people how people feel about an experience. For example, how they feel about a new housing development, so something, it could be something as prosaic as that. They Often, if they use novels, they can use novels and read novels where novelists have tried to 
explain how people express those feelings or are able to express more than people are normally able to express. And that can help them to analyse their data more deeply by actually being able to have some insight into what the emotions might be behind what somebody expresses. So creative practice can be used at all sorts of points within the research process to, to either to deepen or as a form of data itself. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to discover the latest updates on learning resources and events, visit rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore IBG schools.